tonight the topic is a teaching of the Buddhas that really offers us a way to explore our experience, all of our experience. And the, the, the name of this uh, teaching is the Five Aggregates. Many of you have probably heard a version of this teaching. But if you haven't heard this term before, the five aggregates, it it can sound kind of technical. The word aggregate uh, isn't a word that we use in English very much. And it sounds a little foreign and odd. The word that this is translating from the Pali is kanda. And apparently it was more of a common word, an ordinary word, an everyday word that means something like heap or bundle or something like that. And so uh, this teaching on the five aggregates, which is a a kind of a way the Buddha used to, to describe the various aspects of our experience, Processes is another way I like to think of the aggregates. They're processes of our experience. We could think of them as the five, the five heaps. <laughs> the five collections, perhaps, of experience. Five different kinds of collections of experience. And in particular, the Buddha um, highlighted these five And they are form, basically our physical experience, the process of our physical body. They are feeling, includes feeling, the process of recognizing whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. The process of perception, which is the recognizing aspect of experience, how we recognize what's happening to us. Mental formations, the volitional aspect of experience. And consciousness, the cognizing aspect of experience. These aggregates in the the teaching are understood to basically whatever's happening in our experience, whatever experience we are having, can be understood as fitting into one of these five heaps. And so it's kind of like just one way of slicing up the, um, the pie of our experience. And so whatever's happening right now, we could recognize, oh, that's an aspect of feeling, or that's an aspect of perception, or that's an aspect of form of body. It's just one way of slicing up this set of experiences that we have in our lives. The Buddha offered other ways of slicing up this experience, one other one in particular, the six sense spaces. We've talked about that, recognizing experience as being Um, the five physical senses, sight, smell, sound, taste, touch, and then the sense door of the mind, 
Again, anything we experience can be understood as fitting into one of those six areas. I think it's interesting that the Buddha offered these different frameworks um, when I look at the, these two frameworks in counterpoint. Uh, the six sense spaces kind of emphasizes a, a f- refinement of the physical realm. We've got the five physical senses, and then the mind is one in the six sense spaces. In the exploration of the aggregates, there's one, uh, one of the aggregates is the body, and the other four talk about mental processes. So in a way, this teaching, I think, really begins to explore what's going on in the mind. What are the processes at work in our minds? The understanding of the aggregates in the, in the suttas is understood both as process. So there's a process of feeling, a process of perceiving, a process of knowing, a process of intending, a process of uh, having volition and also a process of body. But the aggregates are defined both as the processes and as the results of that process. So for instance, around feeling, which we've talked a lot about, um, we can understand the aggregate of feeling as being kind of the heap of experience that's pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That there's kind of a set of experiences that we have and Every experience that we have has got one of those qualities to it. And so it's, we can notice the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality to our experience. But it's also, the, the aggregate is also understood to be the process of feeling, how it comes about, the, the aspect of our mind responsible for feeling. And so these aggregates are talked about in both ways, and I'll touch upon this to some extent, but in general I'd say that the most easy way to begin to get familiar with the aggregates is through recognizing just the simplicity of the results of the processes. I'll, I'll, I'll distinguish that as we go. So to understand basically each of these heaps, as both a noun and a verb, we could say. The verb is the process of how it comes to be, and the noun is the experience that that results. And from that standpoint, I think aggregate is actually a pretty good translation, because aggregate has both a meaning of being a verb to aggregate, collect together, like that, and some, something is an aggregate if it is something that has been collected together. So we, I think the most common use of that word that I knew before I came to the Buddhist teaching was um, in geology, an aggregate rock is a rock made of other rocks. And so we can, we can kind of understand the, the aggregates as being as Sally said once, stuff made of other stuff. So the Buddha divided up experience in these 
different ways, not just randomly, but because, at least in my understanding, he saw there's particular value to understanding or seeing these particular slices of the pie. And with respect to the aggregates, they're an excellent framework for us beginning to understand just the, uh, the actuality of our experience. What's actually happening in our experience? Not our concepts or views or ideas about the experience, but beginning to point to the processes of the mind, what's going on in the mind in particular, and to help us to see what's going on in there. And the Buddha was really brilliant in describing how the mind functions, how it works. And this teaching of the aggregate really begins to explore these functions of the mind. Also in this teaching, the Buddha emphasized Many times when the Buddha speaks of these five aggregates, he says, he calls them the five aggregates affected by clinging and talks a lot about how clinging happens around these aggregates, how clinging happens around form, how clinging happens around feeling, how clinging happens around perception and consciousness and intending or willing. We tend to congeal and identify the clinging leading to selfing. And so the Buddha often described the process of selfing, of I-making and my-making, with respect to these aggregates. And so as we begin to understand these processes of body and mind at work, our mind begins to understand how the uh, creation of self happens, where we are identifying. At one point, one teacher, I don't have this in my notes, so I'll have to see if I can remember it. Bhikkhu Analio talked about the, this identification around the aggregates that we think of the body as being where I am. Feelings as how I am. Perception as what I am experiencing. Volition, volitional formation is why I'm doing something. And Consciousness, this one's a little odd in his framing, but whereby I am knowing experience. And so all of that has the I in it. We tend to locate ourselves often with respect to these aggregates. And so studying these aggregates, getting familiar with these as processes can help us begin to more... uh, undermine the way our mind believes in the sense of self. So tonight I'd mostly like to talk about what these processes are, what these experiences are, how we can get to know them. 
They are talked about in the Satipatthana Sutta. And the, uh, the exploration there, I'm going to just paraphrase in a way what the Buddha suggests. Because it's, it's, he encourages us to take this as a study of mindfulness. It's in the fourth foundation. And uh, he says that the fourth foundation is the contemplation of dhammas. Dhamma Nupassana. And Dhamma has a number of translations. Small d Dhamma, when it's used with a small d, uh, basically means experience. It's a really simple word. It just means experience that's happening. Capital D Dhamma uh, refers to the teachings of the Buddha, the truth, the understanding of the truth as another definition of Dhamma. In this sutta, it's a small d Dhamma. And so, while often it's translated as mind objects, I like to just think of it as the awareness of experience. And in this fourth foundation, the Buddha encourages us to look at experience through different lenses of the Dharma. One teacher pointed that this fourth foundation is studying Dhamma, small d, studying experience, through the lens of Dharma, capital D. Capital D Dharma five different lists in the fourth foundation that we, uh, of the Buddhist teachings that are explored through this foundation, this being one of those lists. And so for this particular teaching, the, the Satipatthana Sutta says, how does one abide contemplating I'm going to use experience here. How does one abide contemplating experience as experience? I want to stop there for a second because this is something we've been talking about. We've talked about recognizing something that's happening in the present moment as something that's happening in the present moment. A very simple shift of perspective that is not something that our minds normally would do. We tend to impugn, impute meaning to what's happening in the present moment, believe there needs to be something done about it other than recognize it as, oh, this is what's happening in the present moment. And for our mindfulness practice, this is kind of the, the perspective. We contemplate the body as a body. We contemplate feelings as feelings. We contemplate experience as experience. And then it goes on. One contemplates... How does one contemplate experience as experience in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging? So this brings in this framework of the five aggregates. So basically, how does one contemplate experience through this framework of the the five aggregates? It's really simple here. One understands such is form Such is its arising, such is its passing. Such is feeling, such is its arising, such is passing. Such is perception, such is its arising, such is passing. 
and on for the other aggregate. So pretty simple instruction to get familiar, encouraging us to simply get familiar with these aggregates in our experience. Mostly I'm going to explore such, the such instruction. What does it mean to begin to recognize each of these? There are different ways to approach an exploration of the aggregates. One way is to kind of pick up each aggregate for a little while. I did this for a period of time when I was sitting with Saida Utejaniya in Burma. I, it wasn't actually, I didn't actually decide it began more to happen, but I began looking at experience through the perspective of perception. And so I kind of picked that lens up and just was curious about how perception was working in my, in my experience. And so we can kind of look at one of them for a particular length of time, look at it, see what's happening there, take it as an, an area of exploration. Or we can simply just notice our, what's happening in our experience and begin to recognize that, oh, this is what's happening right now. Maybe it's, it's uh, hearing is happening right now. And in hearing, that's impingement on the ear door, which is, which is form. So such is form. Or perhaps we notice pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is feeling. So it, we can do it in different ways. And mostly I'm, I'm interested this evening in kind of offering descriptions of what these aggregates are to support the possibility that you might begin to see them. I'm not especially saying for the next three days you should look at these aggregates. It's more, sometimes Saida Utejaniya would, would offer a teaching like this and he'd, and then I'd go off and try to do it. You know, say, oh, I need to go look at this. And I'd come back and try to report on it and he'd say, don't try to do that. Nothing I say is something for you to do. It's just information. It will support your practice to hear this information. So I offer this in that, in that way. So you don't have to try to do this. And that said, I'll offer a little bit of guided here and there to help you in this talk begin to see some of these. So form... This is pointing to our bodily experience, the bodily processes at work, the description of uh, of what we experience is kind of in the in the touch sense in the realm of our physical sense is understood through the the lens of the four elements earth, air, fire, and water but this is is really just a kind of a way to explore the elemental nature of our experience, what is the kind of, what are the component parts of our physical experience? Not the concepts of our experience, which we talked about this morning in the, there was some discussion about that, the distinction between the experience and the idea of the body, for instance. You know, we can, we can feel the experience of hand through knowing 
a kind of a vibratory, pulsing pressure, hardness, moisture, coolness, heat. We can, we can know those sensations. And yet we often also have kind of an image or an overlay of the concept of, of hand on there. And we often experience our physicality through the concept rather than the direct, actual, felt experience. And so beginning to get familiar with what maybe we could call the language of the body, how the body communicates with us, really helpful to begin to uh, touch into the actuality of our physical experience and begin to tease apart what is actually the bodily experience and what are the mental processes that can get conflated with that. And so in this touch sense, these four areas of earth, air, fire, and water, the earth element is that those aspects of the body that feel solid. And so right now in your experience, Can you touch into a sense of solidity? These sensations are sensations like solidity, heaviness, hardness, softness, a sense of the weight of the body, earth, sitting on earth. Perhaps a sense of the hardness of the bones. You might be able to touch into that. So in terms of the, the language this element speaks to us through, it's hardness, solidity, weight, density. Then the air element is the element, those sensations connected with movement. And so the breath, the movement of the breath right now, feeling into, as the breath goes in, the expansion of the chest, that movement is a manifestation of air element and in the breath is directly connected to the intake of air. And then the release of air, the movement, the falling of the ribcage, the release of that. That's one of the aspects of air element is is the physical movement. And so the movement of the hand, when we move, when we walk, movement is understood to be a manifestation of air element. That's the most obvious kind of manifestation of air element is, is physical movement. At a subtler level, air element communicates with us through the sensations of vibration pulsing, tingling. Right now, can you touch into, maybe put your attention in your hand. It's often an easy place to feel into some of these sensations. Vibration, tingling, pulsing. Sometimes air element also manifests as a feeling of pulling or pushing that kind of the feeling of the chest as it expands, as the air goes in and there's a pressure 
feeling of pressure as the air goes in, that's also a manifestation of air element. And then fire element is the temperature, heat and coolness all along that range. Plenty of opportunity to feel that during the day as the temperature changes during the day, as our bodies move indoors and outdoors. We feel that. Sometimes it's, if you put your hand on your cheek, sometimes that can highlight the temperature element. At least in my case, often there's a, a, quite a difference between the temperature of the hand and the cheek, and so that can be highlighted there. So warmth, coolness, heat. Water element the element that most obviously is expressing in uh, moisture. And so we might feel that with tears or in our mouth and saliva. There's a a kind of a fluidity or um, um, a cohesion. Often I find the, uh, the water element is most easily seen in dependence on some of the other elements. This is maybe uh, easy to see in, in the mouth. And so now we'll just take a little exploration of these elements in the mouth. So take your tongue. And Marcia Rose is the person who uh, I learned this from. Take your tongue and push it against your teeth and see if you can notice in that the hardness of your teeth. And then shift to recognizing that hardness is arising. We're knowing the hardness because of the pushing. We're pushing and we're feeling the hardness, but see if you can touch into the pushing. That's air element. You may or may not have a sense of temperature in your mouth. Now take your tongue and run it across the surface of your teeth. And the kind of smoothness that you feel, perhaps. If your mouth is really dry, it may not feel so smooth. But the the smoothness of the movement across the hardness. So air and earth, the movement of of the tongue across that hardness reveals a slipperiness, which is water element. And so we know these elements kind of independence on each other. I would encourage you not necessarily to try to figure out if an experience is water or air or earth, but to just simply begin to get curious about this language of the body, how the body communicates with us. And our other senses, sight, the basic elemental experience of sight is not, as I sit here and look out, I see people, I see walls, I see tankas, I see candles, I see zabutans and zafus, but that's not elemental. (laughs) That's the overlay of concept. The eye takes things in, in form and color. The ear in pitch, tone, frequency, the tongue, 
in sweet, salty, sour, pungent, savory. Smell, floral, woody, fruity. Apparently, I looked this up today, I was like, what are the component parts of smell? And uh, it's got more texture than most of our senses, actually. It's, uh, it's got a lot of different uh, distinct things that we can smell, indicating perhaps the importance of that for our survival. So this exploration in particular around really getting familiar with the language of the body, how the body communicates with our mind, basically, how the body communicates with the mind, begins to help us to distinguish and recognize the difference between what's physical and what's mental. And this is actually much more easy to confuse than we might think. We might think, yeah, I know the difference between body and mind. But we often confuse them, as in the example of seeing an image of our body and seeing our experience through that image, knowing our experience through that image. And a mental perception of experience, influencing our experience. And so as we begin to get familiar with these very elemental experiences, it supports our beginning to recognize the mental processes. The mental processes at work. The first of those is feeling. We've talked a lot about feeling. I think Carol did a whole talk on feeling. This is the uh, feeling tone of experience whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And we've talked a lot about the importance of this, that as we can begin to recognize the feeling tone of experience, we see whole processes at work that leap off of that. Craving, clinging, becoming. I think Guy spoke of this last night in beginning to recognize the, maybe the little space that can happen when we just know feeling the possibility of it not necessarily, when we just connect, oh, this is pleasant, it like can short circuit that whole movement to craving and clinging and becoming. Feeling tone is understood as a mental experience. That's perhaps easy for us to understand Uh, when we're looking at mind states, like happiness, for example, feels pleasant. Aversion often feels unpleasant. And we know know that that those are mental feelings. But also the, the body is a rich terrain of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And how do we understand feeling associated with bodily experience as mental? What does that mean? Actually, I was kind of um, surprised to hear at one point that neuroscience agrees with this, that uh, the understanding of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is formed in a very uh, basic part of the brain in the brainstem. And if there's damage in that area, 
we can't feel pleasant and pleasant anymore. So it is, it is created in the mind, this feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So as an example, perhaps, of how to understand maybe this as something mental, I'm going to take you through a little thought experiment. Imagine yourself standing on a busy corner waiting for a friend. There's a lot of people going by. You're waiting there. And uh, right at the appointed time, you feel a gentle touch on your shoulder. And because you're waiting for your friend, that may be experienced as pleasant, that gentle touch, because you turn and it's your friend and that's what you were expecting. You know, your friend came up and touched you gently. So that experience may be felt as pleasant in that situation. Now imagine yourself, same kind of busy street corner, standing there waiting to cross the street. You're not waiting for a friend. And, And somebody touches you like that. That may be experienced as a startle. You may actually experience it as unpleasant because you're not expecting it. So the, one of the things to begin to be curious about with feeling are the, is the fact that it's conditioned. Feeling in any moment is not inherent in the experience itself. It is highly conditioned based on our mind state, our expectations, our agendas, our views, our conditioning, the conditions in the world. In one long retreat, I had an example of this, simple example, but very powerful for for really having my understanding dive deeply that feeling is conditioned. It, it, it undermined the idea that feeling is somehow out there, that, that it, you know, somebody can make me feel some way, really just t- to understand how feeling is conditioned. And it was over dinner, over tea at IMS, uh, the evening meal, and it was a very simple evening meal that evening. I had an apple and some bean dip. And uh, I took a bite of the apple, and this was fall in New England. This apple burst in my mouth with tartness and sweetness, and it was so pleasant one of the most pleasant apple experiences I've ever had. (laughs) Very delightful. The whole body was like bubbling with delight. And then I tasted the bean dip. And it had a very different, it was not unpleasant, but it was, it didn't have the same delightful quality. But, um, But then I took another bite of the apple after the bean dip, and it was even more pleasant. Something about the, the conditions of having put the, the kind of um, savoriness of the bean dip on my tongue and maybe the oil that's in there in the bean dip uh, highlighted the tartness and the sweetness of the apple. 
and, and there was even more delight and more ripples of pleasure. And, and, and then I began playing with this, noticing the pleasant aspect and the, the variations of feeling tone. And I noticed that if I took multiple bites of apple, one after another, the pleasure diminished. Have a bite of bean dip, another bite of apple, pleasure was stronger. After some time of all of this, it just got more normalized. It, it ceased being quite so phenomenal. Those <laughs> was kind of, you know, maybe a little bit of pleasant. Same apple, different conditions, different feeling tone. That simple exploration led me to, it, it's like the, when we see things like that, I mean, so this is another encouragement for continuity. It's like we can see things in the most unexpected places of how processes work. So this is some of the process of feeling, seeing the conditioned nature. How does feeling arise? This is part of the Satipatthana, seeing that the feeling arises in dependence on conditions. Stronger, pleasant, after the bean dip. Less pleasant after the tongue had had the flavor multiple times. Also with feeling, we can begin to recognize kind of in juxtaposition to body sensation. Body sensation, heat, coolness. Heat, coolness. You're standing out in uh, the cold and you come inside, perhaps the heat in the room feels pleasant. Other, at another time, this particular temperature might feel unpleasant, depending on what the conditions are. So the, uh, the, the heat, the coolness are one thing. Our relationship to it through the feeling is another all of our experience in the physical realm is like this and we can begin to begin to tease this apart and actually we can begin to recognize in you know unpleasant physical sensation for instance you know the the we can we can touch into at one point i was feeling a a very powerful sensation of my ankle against the the mat strong pressure against the mat what I might call pain, but it, it just felt like strong, neutral experience. A lot of what we call pain, and in turn unpleasant, is because we have the idea that it's painful. Check it out for yourself. The idea of pain, not necessarily the actual sensation of pressure or uh, hardness. That actually might be neutral. But the idea of, I've been sitting here a long time, that pressure feels strong. That's going to hurt my, I'm going to have a bruise on my foot. All of that is contributing to the experience of it being unpleasant. 
So exploring this kind of dynamic between these aggregates is also a very interesting exploration. Perception is the third of these aggregates. This is the process whereby we recognize what's happening. We've talked about it a little bit, that uh, it's, it's a natural process. We couldn't function without it. We use it to navigate the world that we recognize, that, that I look out here and recognize people and zabutans and hard floor and walls and doors. Really useful for me to know the difference between a wall and a door. It's, this is perception at work. It, it's, 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 relation, it's relationship between, um, you know, we experience walls and doors when we're very young. We begin to understand that walls create a barrier. <laughs> Wouldn't want to run headlong into a wall. A door, on the other hand, you know that it gives. So you can, you can push through it. This uh, perceptual process happens because we come into contact with experience over and over again. So it's like this perception is related to memory. We've seen things over and over again. Now I've seen many zabutans in my 20 years as a meditator. I know what it is now. I didn't at first. So the, the perceptual process, the recognition of experience is how we know what something is based on our memory. It's almost like a memory lookup. We experience something, a sound, and our mind kind of searches for the nearest match in our memory banks and says, oh, it's that. The other day in the, in the hall, somebody mentioned this, the hearing of a sound and the mind attributing it to fan. It's like, why is there such a loud fan in here? And then recognizing, oh, it's not fan, it's the stream outside. This is perception at work that we recognize what's happening, that we kind of do this memory matching. Really useful process for our survival and yet really prone to error. It's not perfect by any means as the example of the the fan and and the stream shows. Kind of a classic example of perception is the kind of, and misperception is the, uh, the snake and rope misperception. You walk into a kind of a dim room and there's a coiled rope in the corner. You might misperceive it as a snake. This is a function of, you know, perhaps the dim light. Knowing coiled forms might be snakes, but the, the, the mind perceives it potentially as snake. A whole host of responses can arise based on that. Fear, for instance. You know, emotional reaction to, oh, there's a snake in the corner. I walked up to a crack in the sidewalk at Spirit Rock some years ago, and it turned into a rattlesnake. When I walked up to it, there was no fear. (laughs) As soon as it coiled, (laughs) there was fear. So perception influences our responses to the world. And misperception happens all the time. 
the kind of useful, we have to recognize that perception is useful and it's a natural function of our minds that helps us navigate the world. But what we tend to do also is to reify our perceptions. We take our perceptions to be the truth. This is kind of in the realm of what Bonnie was talking about, the vipalasas, the misperceptions of reality. It's like somebody, for instance, who walks into a, corn, into a room and sees a coiled rope in the corner and perceives it as snake. Usually that kind of misperception can be easily corrected by turning the lights on and seeing that it's actually a rope. But our, our minds get hardened around our perceptions. It's like maybe we've gone in there and seen that coiled form and believe it's a snake. We walk out of the room without ever confirming that it's actually a snake and we reify there's snakes in that room. We go tell everybody else there's snakes in that room. <laughs> and, and so the, the belief gets hardened. We have everybody else being afraid to go into the room. This is a kind of a silly example, but this kind of thing creates a lot of suffering in our world. Perceiving something in some way, reifying it, believing it. As we um, can start to see this process, we can see this, one of the most um, easy ways, at least in my own practice, to, to begin to really explore perception is in the realm of hearing. It's the first place where I really uh, could see the difference between the experience of hearing and the perception. So this happens all the time. We're sitting in the hall and some sound happens. We hear something and our mind will recognize it and identify it. Our mind will say bird or maybe see an image of a bird sitting in a tree. Maybe even if you are a bird watcher, it will see the kind of bird that it is. It will actually identify the kind of bird based on the sound. That's perception at work. Based on the hearing, we know that the sound, sounds we've heard like that have come from birds, and so we perceive it as a bird. Now, it may be somebody's got one of those little bird things making that sound. We may be misperceiving again, but we, again, we believe it to be what we perceive it to be. And so as we see this, as we begin to see this process, we begin to recognize perception at work, we can um, have some measure of recognition that this process is happening. Okay, bird, I think it's a bird. But that we recognize perception is so prone to error that we can begin to undermine that reification of believing our perceptions to be what's actually happening. What we are perceiving 
in my, in my kind of understanding of this. What we're perceiving is a reflection of what's out there. It is, it is related to what's out there. But what we are perceiving is entirely constructed by our minds. That is all we can know is what has been constructed by our minds. And to, to, not to try to stop the perception from happening, we couldn't function without perception, but to recognize it as a function rather than reality. If we could all understand that we are perceiving the world in different ways, I think there'd be a lot more peace in this world. Then mental formations. Mental formations are the what of the mental formations are what we could say the many um, mental activities involving volition, choice, attention, intention. These include our emotions, all of our emotions, anger, fear, confusion, pride, desire, irritation, rage, all of the emotional realm is in this, this mental formations. All of the wholesome states of mind that we've been talking about, peace, mindfulness, concentration, tranquility, these are also mental formations. Then also thoughts are mental formations. It's a huge category. <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's most of what we look at in our minds. Um, intention. We talked about seeing intention. That's a mental formation. Noticing the attention. That's a mental formation. Recognizing beliefs, agendas, views. Those are mental formations. So it's a vast category. And we spend a lot of time exploring this in our mindfulness practice. We've talked a lot about how to meet all of these through the instructions that we've offered during the first few weeks of the retreat. This term, the Pali term for mental formation is sankara. And it's got a dual meaning. Again, uh, it's both that which has been put together. So the actual experience of anger or fear or confusion or joy or peace or mindfulness or intention, that experience, when we see that, we're seeing the, uh, the, the result of the process, of what has been put together. Sankara also means to put together. And this one is really interesting. There's a teaching in the suttas that talks about this aspect of the verb form, the verb nature, the process nature of mental formations. And I'll again kind of paraphrase. Volitional formations... I'm going to use some different words here. So uh, conditioned formations, conditioned the conditioned. What do they condition? They condition form 
as conditioned form. They condition feeling as conditioned feeling. They condition perception as conditioned perception. They condition conditioned feeling. They condition conditions as conditioned. They condition consciousness as conditioned consciousness. So essentially, the, this mental formation is the engine that conditions all of the aggregates. When we are experiencing, as an example, experiencing the volitional formation of anger, it conditions our body. We feel pressure and heat in our body. Our face may get distorted with contortions. Anger conditioning form. It conditions the feeling. When we are angry, we tend to experience things as unpleasant. It conditions our perception. When we're angry, we tend to see how somebody has done us wrong. (laughs) So it conditions how we take in information, how we perceive things. When we're angry, we tend to orient towards things that make us angry. It conditions more anger. When we're angry, it conditions more anger in our minds. And it conditions our consciousness. Our consciousness is, is directed by these, this filter of, of anger. We take in certain things and we miss other things because of this perception, this, this, this frame that we're looking through. And so the importance of understanding the conditioning nature of our mental formations. There's a very strong power, especially in belief, in views, to condition our experience often unseen beliefs, unseen views, condition how we respond to the world. So much suffering comes from this. I'd say all of the isms, racism, sexism, ageism, genderism, phobias, homophobia, fear around differences in sexuality rooted in belief. A belief in our country that America, this country, America is the land of opportunity. Anyone who tries hard enough can fulfill their dreams. It's kind of a pervasive view in much of our culture. That view can lead to a kind of a blindness to not seeing how certain aspects of our society leads to kind of the the white privilege, the, the, the not seeing of how certain groups in our society have access to privileges that make that more possible, that 
that uh, belief more possible than for others. So much suffering comes from this conditioning power of the sankharas. And we can also use them, what we're doing here, as we're trying to kind of bring in new conditions. <laughs> we're bringing in mindfulness and wisdom. We're reconditioning our minds here. Using this power of mental formations to condition our experience. So it's not wholly bad, but we need to understand how it works so that, we, so that our minds can head us in a different direction. Then the last of the five, consciousness, knowing. We've talked about this actually quite a bit. Some, uh, I think I talked about it some last night. This morning the uh, guided meditation was pointing to this. The, the field of knowing the process of knowing. Every experience comes with the experience and the knowing of it. And it's possible in our mindfulness to kind of see either side of that experience. Often we orient towards the object. We orient towards the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, the emotion, the thought, the feeling. And yet with every one of those comes a knowing. And we can begin to be curious about that. Some of the, uh, the, the guided meditation this morning is one way to step back into that field of knowing. We can begin to distinguish when the attention steps back into that field of knowing and when it's touching into the object. The, the mind has the capacity to do either one. That question came up this morning too. In my own experience, it's often useful to just kind of watch which it's doing. Neither one is right or wrong. The mind has the capacity to do both. Sometimes one may be more helpful for us than another. But if we try to say, oh, I want to rest in the field of knowing, and we try to find that experience, I've given myself headaches trying to do that when it wasn't just naturally there. And so... We just really need to, to honor where our minds are exploring in this moment. So it's not so much something to do. We can begin to recognize when we know or are aware of the knowing, when we're aware of the object. There's a few ways we can explore it, and some of these tools have come up. We talked about using, like, seeing is known. We can, we can notice seeing is happening, which kind of orients us more towards the object of seeing. If we explore seeing is known, it may begin to point us back to the knowing a little bit more. And again, distinguishing between physical seeing and mental knowing. Seeing is known, hearing is known. We can also recognize the knowing of mental experience this was a little more challenging for me, um, but I found a, a way into this recognition was easiest when I was experiencing something unpleasant. So aversion, I was experiencing aversion. 
And at one point, while I was experiencing this intense aversion attack, my mind shifted to, oh, and aversion is known right now. When, that, when the mind made that shift to aversion is known, it was clear to me that the mind was seeing it in a different way because when the mind was knowing aversion, the experience was unpleasant. When the mind was knowing that it knew aversion, the experience was neutral because the attention was in the knowing, which is neutral. Knowing has a very neutral feeling, which is partly why it's harder to see. Neutral is a harder experience to touch into. And so an exploration of these aggregates begins to clarify the difference between body and mind, helps us see how mind conditions body, how body conditions mind, how mind conditions mind. As we start to tease these processes apart, we begin to see how they interact. They are constantly going on. These aggregates are We're not doing them. They are taking care of themselves. Whether we're asleep or not, whether we're asleep or awake, whether we're mindful or not, these aggregates are doing their thing. Perception is perceiving. Knowing is knowing. Feeling is feeling. Our volitional formations are forming. (laughs) And they're interacting. We have volitional formations that influence our feelings and our body. Our body, when we have certain experiences in the body, it influences our reactions, our responses in the mind. So they're, really, they're all interweaving. And we can begin to see this conditioned process at work unfolding on its own. Not me in charge of it. Thank God. Goodness, we don't have to be in charge of it. It helps us to see this, to see this conditioned nature. It begins to undermine our belief that I'm doing it. It helps us to see there isn't somebody here actually controlling. Nobody's in charge. (laughs) That through this seeing, wisdom grows. The understanding of how our minds work grows. And that wisdom begins to release this clinging. Begins to release the delusions that form around these aggregates, the confusions. And that wisdom is what allows us to be free. Thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.